Good morning, brothers and sisters. Man, it's great to see you this morning. Great to sing with you. Hey, it's time for Children's Church. And so if you're in pre-K through fifth grade, uh, we'll see you guys and girls later on. Man, I'm so grateful to be a part of a church that sings, grateful to be a part of a church that gathers, grateful to be a part of a church that gives to missions, grateful to be a part of a church that uh, helps the gospel spread in the Middle East, grateful to be a part of this church. Thank you so much uh, for being a wonderful faith family. And if you have your Bible with you, would you open up to the book of Romans? We're going to be in Romans chapter 6 today. And if you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one in a pew rack in front of you. And you can find our passage on page 1001 in that pew Bible. And uh, while you're turning there, one real quick announcement. I'm excited we've got uh, a special guest with us this morning. Danny Kroos is one of our supported missionaries. He's a chaplain at Plymouth County Correctional Facility, uh, has a vibrant ministry, and uh, we're very proud of what the Lord does in and through Danny. And uh, after the worship service, Danny is going to be sharing an update with us about his ministry. We're going to be in the fellowship hall, so on this upper level, just the opposite end of the building. Hope you'll grab a cup of coffee and then join us there during the Sunday school hour, and uh, you can hear more about what the Lord's doing in and through Danny. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14 is where we're going to be this morning. Our identity is influential in our actions. Who we think we are, who we know we are, influences the things we do. This was illustrated for me several years ago in a really simple way. Uh, our girls had some friends over to the house. And when the mom of the friends was about to leave and dropping her girls off, she said to her girls, remember who you are. And I thought, that's such an interesting way to motivate good behavior in a stranger's house. I wouldn't do that. I would just make threats and give angry eyebrows, that sort of thing, and assume that that's what good parents do and it'll get the job done. Uh, but this mom had instilled in her girls this idea that the honor of the family name should motivate the way they acted, uh, especially in the home of, of someone else. Uh, and I thought, I mean, that's really clever parenting. And it wasn't until some time later that I realized uh, the Apostle Paul does the exact same thing in Romans chapter 6. He's going to motivate us today by helping us understand who we are in Christ. He doesn't just tell us, go do better, be different, be less bad and more good. He's going to anchor us in a true sense of who we are by faith in Jesus Christ. And the reason he's going to do that is because we have battle to do against our own sin. We're in a constant struggle with the sin in our lives. And, and I, I don't know about you, uh, sometimes that sin comes in giant, incredible ways. Other times, it's far more subtle. It's, it's less like a knockout punch, more like a hidden poison. It just takes root and slowly decays and withers away from the inside out until we wake up one day and we realize sin has just had its way with me and I just let it go this whole time. Would you like to have more power? Would you like to be free from that sin? Would you like to have confidence that you can defeat your sin in this life as Christ holds you for the next life? Well, 
Romans chapter 6 is going to help us with that today. Up to this point in our study of the book of Romans, Paul is focused primarily on the subject of justification. He's argued really convincingly that justification is not by works of the law, but our justification is by faith in Jesus Christ. And it's through faith alone that we are declared not guilty of our sin and credited with the righteousness of Christ. That's what justification looks like. At the point of our conversion, the point of our faith in Christ, God, our righteous judge, declares us not guilty of our sin and credits us with the righteousness of Christ. But now in chapter 6, Paul shifts his attention away from justification into sanctification. Now, I, I don't want to presume that we all know what these words mean or, or what they look like. And so, on the back of your bulletin, if you happen to grab one when you came in this morning, you'll find a little list called the Order of Salvation. And I'm going to put it here on the screen as well, just in case you forgot to grab one. But the Order of Salvation, or in Latin, it's called the Ordo Salutis. So someone says, what did you learn in church today? Just very pretentiously say, the Ordo Salutis is where we spent our time. Ordo Salutis. These are all the things that happen in our salvation, the, the, the steps that take place. And on the, the graphic on the screen, what I've done is provided a little division so that you can see what happens when. So the first two, election and atonement, those happen long before you walk planet Earth. Uh, the next segment, outward call, regeneration, conversion, justification, adoption, all that happens in one singular moment at the moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ. At the moment of your conversion, the moment of your salvation, these things are true for you. They happen in that very instance. What happens next in between our salvation and our glorification is our sanctification. So sanctification is our salvation life. How do we live as children of God and how do we uh, pursue holiness in this life? That's what sanctification is. So up to this point, Paul's focus has been on justification, everything that happens at our conversion. But now, chapter 6, we're going to focus on our sanctification. Chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8 as well all have our sanctification in view. Sanctification is this process that we partner in with God, wherein we distance ourselves from sin and we become more and more holy, more and more like the people that He's saved us and called us to be. That's a hard process. It's not a gradual incline where every day we're gaining strength and getting wins in our holiness. It, it's rather sloppy. It's peaks and valleys. It's plateaus. It's, it's, it's a constant struggle, but it is a struggle, and it is constant, and we're ongoing in our efforts to live a life that looks more and more like Christ and less and less like our sinful selves. And so Paul's focus this morning in Romans 6 is helping us gain traction in our sanctification, giving us strength and power so that we can really, truly be free from sin and be the kinds of holy people God has saved us to be. So my purpose in preaching this passage is to equip you for success in your sanctification. And Paul tells us in Romans 6 that our success over sin is intimately tied to our identity, our union with Christ. And so I want to show you two ways that our union with Christ leads to success in our sanctification. You should walk out of here this morning feeling strong in the Lord, feeling powerful in your battle against your own sin. 
And so I want you to follow along with me as I read Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Paul writes this, What should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Absolutely not! How can we who died to sin still live in it? Or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin since a person who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him, because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. Death no longer rules over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all time. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you, too, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires. And do not offer any parts of it to sin as weapons for unrighteousness. But as those who are alive from the dead, offer yourselves to God and all the parts of yourselves to God as weapons for righteousness. For sin will not rule over you because you are not under the law but under grace." Do believers really have power over sin? Is it possible to overcome sin in this life? And if so, what is the key? Well, that's what Paul gives us in this passage. Let me show you two ways our union with Christ leads to success in our sanctification. The first is this. Our union with Christ means a victorious identity. It describes who we are. This is our new victorious identity by union with Christ. So in verse 1, Paul returns to one of his favorite literary techniques. He asks a question from the perspective of an imaginary objector, a person who might disagree with what Paul's been saying so far. And so Paul comes back with this objectionable question. The question, verse 1, should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Why this question? Well, if you just glance back at chapter 5, verse 20, just a few lines before, uh, Paul uh, essentially says, uh, sets up this question. He says in verse 20, The law came along to multiply the trespass, but where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more. So Paul wrote that line in verse 20 and then imagines this objector pushing back. Oh, so... When I sin, grace is multiplied. I guess I should multiply my sin so God can multiply His grace. And Paul also referred to this same way of thinking earlier in the letter, back in chapter 3, verse 8. Chapter 3, verse 8, Paul wrote, Why not say, just as some people slanderously claim, we say, let us do what is evil so that good may come. Their condemnation is deserved. So Paul's familiar with this accusation, this idea that, Paul, if you're just preaching grace, then really what you're doing is giving license to sin. You're just telling people, just, just believe, and then you can live however you want, do however you want. In fact, 
if sin or sin multiplies, grace multiplies even more, then multiply your sin so grace can multiply even more. And this is where Paul bows up, gets a little angry. He says, absolutely not. Grace is not an excuse for sin, not justification for sin. His answer in verse 2 is given with the strongest possible negative language. Absolutely not. Grace is not an excuse to sin. So where he says absolutely not, imagine that in all caps with an emoji right after it of someone's head exploding. That's Paul in the answer to his very own question. Should we sin so grace can abound? Absolutely not. How can we who died still live in sin? Or are you unaware that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Now, what is Paul talking about here? This is confusing language. When did we die to sin? When were we baptized into the death of Jesus? Well, Paul's describing a beautiful and important theological truth called union with Christ. I've used the phrase already this morning, without definition, so here is a good definition of what union with Christ is. Union with Christ is the believer's solidarity or association with Christ by the Holy Spirit and through faith through which believers receive Christ's saving benefits. To be united with Christ happens by faith. It's through the Holy Spirit. It's this association, solidarity with Christ through which we receive Christ's benefits. If you'll think back to last Sunday, if you were with us, if you weren't, I'd encourage you to, to hop online and, and check out last Sunday's message. We spoke of this theological idea called federal headship. You remember what that was all about? Federal headship teaches that our standing with God is determined by who our representative is. And, and so by virtue of our birth, uh, we have a representative in Adam. Every person who exists has Adam as their representative. We are united with Adam by birth, and we are united with him in his sin and his death. That's true of all people. But by faith in Jesus, we are born again. And Jesus becomes our representative. No longer are we united in sin and death, but now we're united with Christ in his victory and in his righteousness. Christ is our representative. This idea of union with Christ builds on the idea of Christ as our representative as well. So it helps us understand the fundamental nature of our salvation. Maybe you thought salvation was this. It's pray a sinner's prayer and then do your best the rest of your life to do more good than bad and maybe you make it at the end. But the fundamental description of our salvation is that we are in Christ. We are united with Him, locked together with Him. You know, Paul throughout his writings never uses the word Christian. He only describes followers of Jesus as those who are in Christ. Union with Christ is his standard vocabulary for helping us understand the nature of our salvation and our relationship with him. Still, this idea of being in Christ can, can seem a little vague and mysterious, and it doesn't need to be. Let me share with you what I think is one of the most helpful uh, analogies for understanding our union with Christ. It comes from a pastor in Australia named Rory Shiner. Listen to how Rory Shiner describes union with Christ. Imagine yourself at the airport about to board a plane. The plane is on its way to sunny Melbourne, and Melbourne is where you want to be. 
What relationship do you need to have with the plane at this point? Would it help to be under the plane? To submit yourself to the plane's imminent authority in the whole flying to Melbourne thing? Or would it help to be inspired by the plane to watch it fly off and whisper, one day I hope to do that too. What about following the plane? You know the plane is going to Melbourne, and so it stands to reason that if you take note of the direction it goes and pursue it as fast as your little legs will carry you, then you too will end up in Melbourne. Of course, the key relationship you need with the plane is not to be under it, behind it, or inspired by it. You need to be in it. Why? Because by being in the plane, what happens to the plane will also happen to you. The question, did you get to Melbourne, will be part of a larger question, Did the plane get to Melbourne? If the answer to the second question is yes, and if you were in the plane, then what happened to the plane will also have happened to you. I think, at heart, the biblical idea of being in Christ is something like that. According to the New Testament, to be in Christ is to say that by union with Him, whatever is true of Him is now true of us. He died, we died. He is raised, we are and will be raised. He is vindicated, we are vindicated. He is loved, we are loved, and so on, all because we are in Him. Isn't that good? Does it give you an idea of what it means to have union with Christ, to be in Christ? What is true for Him is true for you. When we speak of our union with Christ, We're speaking of being in Him, and as such, His death and life and righteousness and reward are ours. But how? What's the catalyst that sparks that union with Christ? How do we join our lives to Him or find ourselves in Him? This, again, is where there could be some confusion. In verse 3, look at what Paul wrote. He said, Are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? So is Paul saying that Our baptism in the church, taking part in that ritual, is the place where we are united with Christ. Is that what Paul's saying? And my answer is a very strong no. Paul's use of the word baptism here is not a reference to the ritual or the ordinance of baptism. You have to remember that the Greek word that's translated baptism literally means plunge or immerse. And that word is used in any context in which One thing is plunged into another. Most often, it's a body of water. So it was used in antiquity to describe a sinking ship or a drowning person or even a surgeon's scalpel entering a patient. And so in this instance, Paul's not making a direct reference to the church ritual of baptism. It seems certain that the ritual is somewhere in the background. I mean, he, he's aware of it. He knows what it is. So I don't think it's far from his vocabulary or his thought, especially in this instance. But when Paul says we are baptized into Christ Jesus, he doesn't mean plunged into the baptismal waters. He means plunged into Christ which he has told us repeatedly, happens how? By faith. It's by faith that we are immersed into Christ, plunged into Christ. Over and over already in this letter, he has argued our justification is by faith. It's not by works, not by baptism, not by circumcision, not by keeping the law. It's by faith and faith alone. And so here when he says we're baptized into Christ, we're not baptized into the waters, we're baptized into Christ by faith. 
So uh, believer's baptism is not the place of our union with Christ, but it is the portrayal of our union with Christ. Here's some of the imagery I like to use, and also this is what you get when you come to a Baptist church. Imagine with me, this arm is the water in our baptism tank. And here's you standing in the baptismal waters. It makes a symbol, and the symbol is that of a cross. In your baptism, you are telling of your union with Christ in His death on the cross. And then laid in the water, it's your union with Him in His burial. And then raised from the water, it's your union with Him in His resurrection in the new life that you now lead. Your baptism is not where that occurs. It is the portrayal of what has occurred through your faith in Jesus Christ. If you weren't baptized by immersion, I'm not up here to cast judgment on that. I'm just saying this is how Baptists do it. And the reason we baptize the way we do is because of the picture that it paints, a picture of our union with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. So, Paul's telling us, you have this identity You've been united with Christ in His death, burial, and His resurrection. And this is where we gain power over the sin in our lives. And just real quick, I want you to glance with me at at all that comes from our union with Christ. In verse 3, Paul said we are plunged into His death. In verse 4, we are buried with Christ. We're also raised from the dead to walk in newness of life. In verse 5, we're united with Him in His death again. And so we're certainly united in the likeness of His resurrection. In verse 6, our old self is crucified, left powerless, and as a result, we're freed from sin. No longer a slave to the sin that used to ensnare us. So, so what do we do with this? How does this practically help us in our battle against sin? Well, there's only one command in, in this section, verses 1 through 11, all this imagery that Paul gives us, there's only one singular command, and the command is found in verse 11. Look at your Bible with me. In verse 11, the command is the word consider. Your Bible might have the word count or reckon instead, but it's consider. Consider yourselves dead to sin. He gives us this image. You're baptized into Christ. His death, your death. His resurrection, your resurrection. His life, your life. You're freed from sin, So here's the command, consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. To consider means to know or believe this truth. Our minds and hearts need to constantly sit with this truth so that we can live in a way that's consistent with it. The command to consider is an ongoing command, not just a one-time thing. It is daily, maybe multiple times a day, that we consider who we are in Christ. We remember who we are. Paul wants us to think rightly about who Jesus is and who we are in Christ and wants our minds to be grabbed by that truth that by faith in Christ we're united with Him in His death and resurrection. So then when sin is crouching at my door waiting to pounce, I remember who I am in Christ. I'm dead to my old sinful self, and I'm alive to Christ, risen with Him. There's this regular pattern in our sanctification. The pattern is identity followed by action. Who we are precedes what we do. For grammar nerds in the house, the indicative precedes the imperative. That's what drives our action. Who am I? 
I am by faith united with Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection. And you want to know something even more incredible? Not only am I considering the kind of person I am in Christ, I'm also considering the people that I belong to in Christ. I'm not alone in my union with Christ. I share that union with my brothers and sisters in my local church. And so this takes me from an I perspective to a we perspective as I battle against my sin. One of our previous pastors, Godwin Sathya Nathan, wrote a beautiful article about the corporate implications of our union with Christ. And in that article, he imagines what it would be like if our local churches embraced a radical we orientation rather than a culture-shaped I orientation. So consider yourself dead to isolation, to despair, loneliness, and posturing, and instead alive to the family of faith, to others who will carry your burdens, who will laugh in your joys and weep in your grief, others who need you as much as you need them. So in your sanctification, your union with Christ gives you such an advantageous position. Your enemy, this sin that so easily ensnares you, is dead, powerless, no longer reigning over you. Your new identity in Christ is not an emerging identity. It is settled. You are his child. And since he died and rose to sin, uh, you or died to sin and rose to victory, you share in that victory with him. You are already victorious. Remember who you are. You are a child of God, held by Christ, united with him in his death and resurrection. So our union with Christ gives us success in our sanctification in this one profound way. It gives us a new victorious identity, but there's a second way that it helps us. Our union with Christ means power to conquer sin. We start with identity, we go to action. This is who we are, this is now what we do in verses 12 through 14. And so Paul now issues a call to action. And whereas there was just one brief command in that previous section. Now in these few verses, there are four commands in rapid fire sequence. Look at it with me. Verse 12, therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires and do not offer any part of it to sin as weapons for unrighteousness, but as those who are alive from the dead, offer yourselves to God and all the parts of yourselves to God as weapons for righteousness. For sin will not rule over you because you're not under the law, but under grace. So we have four commands here, four lines, four commands. Uh, The first two are negative, the second two are positive. So the first two are don't do this, the second two are do this. So verse 12 is the first negative command, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desire. First line of verse 13 is the second negative command, do not offer any parts of it as sin or to sin as weapons for unrighteousness. And then The next two commands are positive, and they parallel the first two. So the first one, verse 13, as those who are alive from the dead, offer yourselves to God. And then the last one, uh, and all parts of yourselves to God as weapons for righteousness. So don't let sin reign. Don't be a weapon of unrighteousness. Do offer yourself to God, and do be a weapon of righteousness. You see the parallels between those lines. Paul's brilliant with the way he uses language to help us understand and grasp what we ought not do and what we should do, that which we should kill and that which we should be alive to. 
Now, your Bible might say instrument instead of weapon. I think weapon's a better translation, but we're not going to let sin reign in our lives, and we're not going to do sin's bidding. It's interesting, he portrays sin almost like a king. In verse 12, don't let sin reign in your body. There's a throne in your heart, so to speak, and sin wants to usurp that throne, wants to take it over and and control your life. And what makes this king even more insidious is, is not just that he wants the throne, but that this king has an army, and he wants you to be a part of that army. He wants you to be a weapon for unrighteousness. Paul says, don't do it. Don't give this fake king the throne to your life. Don't give him ground in your life to control your thoughts and your words and your actions so that unrighteousness would come from you. Sin and evil would come from you. Instead, give yourself to God. That offer yourself to God command, that's, that's not a one-time thing. It's over and over, continually offering ourselves to God, full-on commitment so that there is no challenge to the throne in our lives. God reigns supremely and forever. And then we live as weapons of righteousness. What does it mean to be a weapon of righteousness? We're not super comfortable with weapony language. And so what does that mean? Here's what I think it means. I think there are some great examples, even among us, of what it looks like when we live as weapons of righteousness, pushing back darkness and instead bringing in the gospel light of Jesus Christ. Here's an example. Um, This weekend, a group of women in our church, many of them moms of teenage girls in our student ministry, organized this incredible weekend event for the girls in our student ministry. That's what being a weapon of righteousness looks like. Likewise, the young men in our student ministry had a great night of fellowship on Friday night. Saturday morning, they showed up here and cleaned up the church property along with another group of our church members. Those are weapons of righteousness. Last Monday night, our missions committee met to pray for our missionaries and to consider new opportunities for missions partnerships. That's a weapon of righteousness. Our deacons visit the sick and care for those who are in need and and help pay the bills for people who are in financial distress. That's a weapon of righteousness. Our elders are shepherds to our church family, caring for the families they are assigned to. These are weapons of righteousness. And what about you? Did you pray for a loved one or a friend this week? Did you give to someone in need? Did you constrain your temper and respond with patience? Did you have a gospel conversation? Did you resist temptation? Did you sit with the Word of God open? Did you worship? Did you make it to church today? Have you obeyed the Lord in some way? You, my friend, are living as a weapon of righteousness Those who are united to Christ fight regularly to distance themselves from sin and to live more and more like Christ. Here's where you might ask a a fear-based question. If I still struggle with sin, does that mean I'm not really saved? What Paul's given us here and what you seem to be describing, Cody, is is someone who's just, they're solid, they're they're secure, they know what's going on. Sin isn't really that big of an issue for them. I still sin. Is that because I'm not a believer? Well, no, that's not necessarily the case. All Christians sin. The very reason we need to be sanctified is because we are God's children who still sin. 
And so don't put the impossible standard of perfection on yourself. And this is where we don't base our, our, uh, we don't base our salvation on our feelings. Salvation isn't a feeling, it's, it's a truth promised to us in God's Word. And so who are you in Christ? You are His child. And we can't forget the comforting words of verse 14, the words that close out this section. Paul said, sin will not rule over you because you're not under the law, but you're under grace. Grace, the grace of God is the power to dethrone sin in your life, the real power to produce holiness in your life. You're not saved according to your sinless perfection, but by the grace of God, you are covered in your union with Christ and you have strength and power to overcome that sin. So our union with Christ is a big deal. It's huge, especially when it comes to our battles against our own sin. It gives us this outsized advantage. One, it gives us this victorious new identity. And two, our union with Christ gives us God-sized resurrection power to conquer our sin. So this passage is a call to arms. It's not to be read lightly or quickly. It's like a trip to the armory where we load up on all we need to protect the throne of God in our lives and to put down the evil that tries to usurp that throne. And so how can we really do that? I think verse 11 gives us a great uh, guide for how to combat sin in our lives and how to live to God in Christ. Verse 11 gives us this simple one-two punch that you can carry out of here with you this morning and put to immediate use with deadly effectiveness for the sake of your own holiness. Verse 11, look at what Paul said to us there. He said, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. Theological terms we might use here to consider ourselves dead to sin is to mortify that sin, to kill it. To be alive in Christ is vivification. Mortification, vivification, we're going to kill sin and we're going to bring to life this positive gospel fruit in our lives. So here's what that one-two punch might look like. It might be this, you die to pride and you live to humility. You die to greed and you live to generosity. You die to sexual sin and you live to purity. You die to anger and you live to gentleness. You die to bitterness and you live to forgiveness. So if, as Paul has told us, we've died to the old self, then brothers and sisters, quit giving that corpse CPR. It's dead. Leave it there. The old you is dead. You're freed from that sin. And now you are alive to Christ. And so what's the sin you need to leave for dead? And what is the spiritual fruit that you need to give life to? Can you name it? Can you name both of these things? This needs to die so that this can live. Do you have what you need to repent and turn away? Do you need strength and support from trusted brothers and sisters in the faith to help you in your sanctification? Should you ignore your sin so that grace can multiply? No, not an option. You're not going to play that game. That's not what God's people do. You died to that sin. And so it's time now to live in the freedom of Christ.
Paul boiled all this down to its very essence in a beautiful verse that you might know. Galatians 2 verse 20 charts the course for how we walk away from this passage. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Brothers and sisters, remember who you are and put on your strength. Let's pray together. Father, we need your help this morning, and you have given it to us in abundance. We lack no good thing in you, and so out of your omnipotence and out of your vast love and compassion, you have given to us a new identity and strength to overcome sin in our daily lives. Lord, Convince us that your word is true, that this power is effective and freedom from sin is both our reality and our possibility in our day-to-day lives. Thank you that through faith in Christ, we've been freed from sin's penalty. Now, as we walk with you, help us as we seek more and more freedom from sin's power. Uh, Lord, remind us constantly. Holy Spirit, remind us who we are through our union with Christ. And let that identity drive our battle against our own sin, that we would kill the sin that's already dead in us, and that we would live to the fruit of the Spirit. Help us in this, that in our thoughts, our words, and our actions, that we would live to Christ. Holy Spirit, press in conviction in our lives in the places where sin is going unchecked, where the darkness is abiding and even spreading, where sin is insidious, not necessarily big and flashy, but where it seeps in and brings rot and decay. Holy Spirit, open our eyes to that so that inside and out we would be your men and women through and through, becoming more and more like Christ with each day. Help us in this. Thank you for who we are and what we have at our disposal in our power over sin. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.